welcome to, wow, you guys really stopped this morning. Usually I have to like fight for that. That was almost too easy. It was the lights. Is that what did it? Yeah, who did that, by the way? That was, was that you? No. What? Is that the symbol? Yeah, that's the signal in uh, your classrooms. Okay. All right. Now on a rainy day when you can't go out to recess class, isn't this when you play heads up, seven up? Do you guys remember that? Here we go. Uh, that would actually be kind of fun, but some other time. Um, welcome to Mercy Hill. If I haven't met you, my name's Nick. I'm, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, you could call me the teaching pastor if you would like. I uh, am typically bringing the word to you guys. Wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas. Um, we're in the season. I'm loving it. Although it's been busy, I must say, our Christmas tree... Uh, I've made a couple trips to the store to get more colored lights, and somehow we still haven't made it up to the top. So it, it has lights up to about the about a foot from the top, and then the angels up there all alone, you know, nothing, no glory. Uh, it's been a good one, but a busy one for me. Um, hope you guys are having a good good season as well. Um, love this church. Love love the the announcements being made about what's going on, people's hearts for for orphans, people's hearts, for addicts, people's hearts for the suffering in our in our congregation. Um, you guys are awesome. You guys are, like I said it last week, it's amazing to see the church being be in the church and uh, reaching out and with the love of Christ, not just uh, within our fellowship here, but within the city and even um, within the world. So thank you guys. Let's um, open up our Bibles. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and uh, the ushers will get one to you. Thanks, guys. If you don't own a Bible, uh, Merry Christmas. And if you want to give it away uh, to someone you know for Christmas, uh, feel free. Take it and give it. We have an, an, an amazing privilege in this country to have the Word of God so available to us, and we want to we want to get it out. We're going to read in uh, Luke, verse 26 is where we're going to start. we we'll read down to verse 38. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke in your New Testament, chapter 1, verse 26. I'll read this, we'll pray, and then we will uh, we'll get into it. We're now in kind of the second part of um, what I've been calling, We Wish You a Merry Rescue, the advent of Christ and the, the rescue of sinners. So let's read this here. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. God, we we gather here in many ways to remember Christmas every week. 
I mean, we would not, we would not be here if you hadn't come for us, Lord. In the flesh. Redeemed us. Paid the price for our sins. Merited the reward by your own righteousness. And given us the gift of your grace and your spirit. We would not be here were it not for Christmas. And your coming. We pray... We pray, Lord, as we dive into your word and remember again what you've done for us. We pray that it would take on new meaning. We pray that in our hearts would rise fresh appreciation, fresh affection. God, that we would we would truly let us come and adore him. Let us come and adore. Let us adore you, God for what you have done. <clears throat> God, you know the hearts in this room. You know the lives. You know you know what's going on throughout the week. You know the temptations. You know the doors we've opened. Maybe not with our hands, but in our hearts and the ways we're straying. And, and God, I'm praying that you would call all of us back. Call all of us back to the cross this morning, to the manger, (laughs) Bethlehem, and the cross, Calvary. God, would you use me to do that? Help me to get out of the way. Let me just be a vessel. God, would you open up our ears, open up our eyes, open up our hearts. We'd receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> I've told some of you this. I am a recovering seminarian, okay? <laughs> some of you are like, we get that. We see this in your sermons. It feels sometimes more like uh, a seminary paper than, than a, a sermon for um, the church. And I just, I say this up front because Guys, I'm learning. I, uh, I don't think I realized four years in uh, seminary how I would come out and immediately just run. When I now approach text, I'm thinking so theologically and content-oriented because that's what I was doing for four years. I don't think I realized that it would, it would be some adjustment to then uh, bringing that into, into something that would be appropriate for the church. Um, this week I've got a lot for us. That's why I'm opening this way. <laughs> and, and there's part of me that as I look, I go, oh, you know, they really don't need to know all this. Oh, what am I doing? And, um, but you know what? It's amazing. It, knowing the story, seeing how, as we'll look today, all the covenants fulfilled in Christ, incredible. I ask you just to bear with me as I kind of work out some of my seminary kinks and everything else. And, and today, I promise, uh, well, God willing, we will, we will get to some, some, some serious application at the end. Um, I think it's often a danger, actually, in the church where we, we so badly want to make things applicable, right, that we immediately kind of jump from the text to your life, and start making this stuff so it's relevant. And when we don't take the time to really see what's going on in the text itself, we can actually start making applications that aren't even appropriate to what God is saying. Um, so allow me, if you will, to sharpen this point for a little while so that at the end we can drive it in the most sweetest way into our own hearts and, uh, and, and, and hopefully see some fruit from that, okay? So... Last week, I argued that uh, Christmas can only be properly understood in light of creation. We talked about the Trinity, we talked about the dance, we talked about the rescue, right? But now, I, I want to refine this a little bit more this morning. It's, it's my understanding that Christmas, if it is to be properly understood, must be seen not only in light of creation, but in light of covenant, Okay, in light 
of covenant. When God created man, he entered into covenant with him, right? And this covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden essentially sets the contours in place by which the rest of the story of redemption will kind of, will kind of follow along. It's as if he's kind of in, in the garden with this covenant, kind of channeling out this, this, this canal, if you will, into which the rest of redemptive history will flow. So if we understand what's happening with covenant at the beginning, it's a theme, it's something that sets the stage for all that's coming later, including Christmas. So if Christmas is to be properly understood, we want to see it in light of covenant. If last week we noted that in light of creation, Christmas is rescue, this week I hope that in light of covenant, we'll see more clearly just why we need to be rescued. Who can rescue us? How we need to be rescued? Uh, what we're being rescued from and for? That starts to come into clearer focus when we see um, this idea of covenant. In fact, um, if you know of J.I. Packer, he's an amazing man. If you have any Christian book, he's probably written the little blurb on the back of it. It seems like he's, uh, he's read everything. He has something to say about everything. He's an amazing uh, Christian scholar. He says this, The gospel of God is not properly understood until it is viewed within a covenantal frame. It's a pretty big statement. So if we can start to grasp this idea of covenant, then we start to get the idea not only of Christmas, but the gospel in general. Now, why am I bringing this up here? What does this have to do with our text in Luke that we just read? Well, there's actually a method to my madness, and here's what I'm seeing as I'm reading Luke, and I'll show you this. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Um, amazingly packed into our text in Luke are actually allusions to all the major Old Testament covenants. I'm going to show you this as we go along, but what we get the sense is that there's this kind of unfolding uh, unity to all the biblical covenants that are finding their fulfillment in Christmas Day in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Luke and Gabriel and God are, are drawing our attention. I mean, this is the biggest moment in history, you guys. I mean, it's not just some little baby that makes our heart feel warm and fuzzy. This is everything in history pointing to this moment. I think that's what we're going to see in our text. All the covenants being fulfilled in the coming of this Christ. And what we're going to do this morning um, might be a little bit backwards, but I want to trace these covenants with their unfolding unity towards Christ. So we're actually going to start in the Old Testament and move forward to Luke at every point. A lot of times what I'll do is start in the text, right, in Luke, and then go, go back from there to look at some of the roots. What we're going to do today is actually start with the roots, so that you can kind of see how all of this is moving us towards Christmas and the Son of God, the arrival of the Christ. Now, before I can begin, um, we got to ask, you know, what is covenant, right? It's important to understand what it is, even biblically, uh, before we can we can begin to to look at them in in, in the Old Testament. One author, I think, puts it uh, simplest, puts it best, in my opinion, uh, by saying this. A covenant, biblically speaking, is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. Did you hear that? Let me read it one more time. A covenant is an agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. And add three more qualifiers to this to hopefully help us uh, as we analyze each covenant. Um, 
I would say that these biblical covenants are one, initiated by God's grace. They're initiated by God's grace. They're integrated with man's works. Meaning, though they begin with the sense of God's grace, they're initiated there. God incorporates or integrates man's works as conditions within them. And all these covenants are going to be incomplete until Christ's advent. Okay? Initiated by grace, integrated with man's works, but incomplete until Christ's advent. I'm going to begin then with the covenant made in the garden. This is, like I said, going to set the stage for everything. And it undergirds Christmas Day in more ways than we can even know. First covenant made with Adam, um, we should say, while related to all the covenants that follow, actually is a little bit separate from it. And here's what I mean. Um, While this covenant, God coming to speak to his creation and making this agreement with conditions and blessings, curses, depending upon obedience or disobedience, God coming to him, making this covenant in in the garden, while that is, in a sense, an initiation of grace, you could say, and that God didn't have to come and relate to us, there is a sense where it's not yet uh, something we would call grace in the fullest sense, right? Because we haven't... We have, sin hasn't entered the picture yet. We haven't, man hasn't fallen yet. And so what theologians often refer to this as in the garden is a covenant of works. Here's what I mean by that. It means that God comes and says, okay man, now let's see what's in your heart. Let's see what man is made of. Adam is tested, if you will. The terms of this covenant are given, right? You can have every tree. I mean, God is gracious, even in the beginning. I mean, you could still call it, He's given him everything. But He says, except for one. I don't want you to eat from that one. Adam is free at this point, to choose what he's going to do. The terms are laid out. If you're obedient, life. I think that's what's meant by the tree of life that's held out, right? That Adam now can't eat from after, after the fall, if we recall. He can't eat from that anymore. It's as if, if he were obedient, he would move into eternal life in some magnificent way. But disobedience, what is it that hangs over him as the curse? The threat of death, right? What does he say? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there it is. There's the covenant made with the first, uh, first human beings, Adam and Eve, right? Now Adam, like I said, is free to choose and man is going to show what he is made of, what is in his heart. And it's tragic. Partners with not God, but with Satan in the form of a serpent. Then he falls. That's why we call it the fall. At this point, the curse starts to come in onto, human, onto the world, right? Into God's creation. And this bond that we enjoyed with our Creator is now fractured in a very significant way. The covenant of works with Adam failed. But here's the important point. Not on God's side, but on man's. I mean, God's side of the covenant, He never fails. He always upholds His end. And what we will find is the covenants always fail on our side. We never seem to, 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 to keep this, uh, His commands. And our side of the agreement, we're always ready to run off to something else. And that was kind of set in place here at the very beginning. This covenant that 
God made with Adam of works didn't end in righteousness, glory, and life, but in sin, shame, and death, right? This is going to set, as I've said, the covenantal contours from this point forward that the rest of the story of redemption will follow in in line with. And we live, we live in, 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 in the world of, of this, this wreckage. <laughs> we live in the wake of, of Adam's covenant failure. And whether or not we would trace our, our problem back to this or, or understand it in light of the story in Eden, we're all aware, right? I mean, con- confession, we all have serious problems, <laughs> right? I do, you do, we look around, we watch the news, we see what's going on in our, in our own hearts, in our own lives. There are serious problems in the world. This place is fallen. You don't have to be a Bible-believing Christian to believe that. That's why all over we're trying to find solutions to the problem. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, we're in, we're in the, you know, we're in the, the race for the presidency. That's what it's all about, right? Who's gonna fix what we all see is wrong? So we're living, we're living in the wreckage of Adam's covenant failure. We're always trying to locate the source of this problem. Where did this come from? Here's the crazy thing. Where we locate the source is also where we're going to look for the solution, right? So think with me here. Think with me here. If you think that the big problems in your life have to do with your relationships, that you're unhappy, you're, you're broken because of your relationships, you're going to start looking for solutions in relationships, if you will, right? So if you don't have one and you're lonely and upset because of that, you're going to start looking for one thinking that will fix you. To the degree, and I've seen this happen, God forbid, but that nice guy or that nice girl at work that isn't even a believer, because they kind of smile at you or they treat you nicely, you start really considering, maybe that's where I should go. That is going to be the solution to my problem. Not this gospel stuff that this preacher's talking about every Sunday. But a, a, a man or a woman in my life. Or maybe you have a relationship and you're thinking the opposite of this. You think, okay, the problem is my relationship. I got to get a new one. <sighs> So you're talking about messy breakups or divorce. So you can go, this person wasn't fixing me. I got to get to someone else who will. See what I'm saying? Or out there again in, in, the, in the political world right now, you have this idea of guns are the problem. Right? That's what, that's what some people are talking about. What do we do with the mass shootings? Guns are the problem. If we get rid of the guns... We'll get rid of the the, 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 the the you know the murders and the bloodshed and while we can sympathize with the goal, right? That's a good goal. We want to get rid of, of the bloodshed. Getting rid of guns, we know, isn't gonna fix the problem. It doesn't get to the source. Here's what will happen. We'll just find another way to kill one another. We'll just use blades. We'll use uh, stones. We'll use my hands around your neck. Whatever it is, we have been killers, you guys, from the beginning. This is, this is the crazy part about humanity. We have been killers from the beginning. Right as they walk out, what happens? Adam's first son, Cain, a killer. This is a fallen world. I read this in Genesis. Did you hear this? I mean, what have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Problem isn't guns. Problem isn't relationships. The problem is always deeper and always higher than we often care to admit. Okay? Always deeper, 
always higher than we often care to admit. What do I mean by that? It's deeper in that it's not out there in this or that person or this or that circumstance. It's in me, the very chambers of my own heart. Okay? It's higher. What do I mean by that? It's not in the horizontal dimension of this world. It's actually, remember, remember, remember David? I have sinned against you and you alone, even though he, you know, committed adultery with, with Bathsheba and killed her husband. All these things. It's you. We have a problem, ultimately, not with everybody out here, but with our Creator, the one who made us. It's deeper and it's higher, which means, in other words, we, I, have a heart problem with God. And that is a very big deal. Now, hopefully, you're starting to see how what happened there in the garden sets us on a trajectory that will lead us towards Christmas and the cross and our redemption. But our, our, the fall is understood covenantally. Now, it is into this, pro, this fallen and fractured world that God speaks grace. He speaks grace. Before cursing Adam and Eve, He gives a promise, pointing us to the real solution, to the real problem. That's Genesis 3.15. An offspring is going to come to the woman, right, who will take out the serpent. Inflict a blow to Satan's head. He's going to make things in yours and my life and this world right again. Here's the one who's going to do a deep dive into literally the heart of the problem and redeem us there. Here's what's awesome about our God. Though... We deserve the curse of immediate and eternal death, right? Adam and Eve should have just dropped into hell at that point. God refuses to do it. (laughs) He's always restraining, and we're going to see this throughout covenantal history. He's always restraining the full blow of the covenant curses because He's determined to bring us back into the covenant blessings. He's always restraining the covenant curses' death and, and the second death, eternal death, restraining that because He desperately wants to get us into the covenant blessings, life, eternal life, salvation, redemption, joy in His presence. That's where He wants to get us. He's unwilling to just pour out His wrath here at the beginning. Instead, He makes a promise. Offspring is going to be born to the woman. It's going to make things right. This promise, I want you to see it like this. It's as if he dropped a seed into the barren soil of this foreign or of this fallen world, right? And that seed, throughout the the, the Old Testament, we're going to watch it sprout, and we're going to watch it start to open its leaves until it comes full flower in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. Now. We start to tread onto the verses of our text in Luke at this point. You say, oh, when are we, we going to get to Luke? So I told you, I'm going to go backwards. I'm going to start Old Testament covenantal stuff, move forward, show you where it is in Luke. Well, let me ask you this. Is there an offspring, promised offspring, being born to a woman in our text? Is that what Christmas is all about? Luke 1.31 Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You know that one, that little seed that I dropped into the ground way back in Genesis 3.15? The fruit is now hanging off the branches. Okay? The Christ is come. Now, we looked at the covenant with Adam and now we start to move into this this realm of grace where grace is going to is going to run underneath all of God's dealings with man. He's going to continue to work covenantally with us. 
He's going to continue to work covenantally with us and we're going to continue to fail. But grace now, that flag has been put into the ground and, and it's, going to, it's going to run underneath all that He does from this point forward. Even though we're going to continue to blow it. He's going to be, he's going to be pointing us back to the way man fell in Adam and pointing us forward to the coming one. So let's watch him as he does this because this promised redeemer offspring is going to start to take on kind of covenantal form. We trace, we trace this offspring from Adam to Seth to Noah. I don't know if you know this, but most of the most of the Old Testament is concerned with tracing this, this the line of this offspring. Do you know that? Why do you think there are all these genealogies in your your New Testament gospels and things? I think it's just just to, just to bore you on Sunday, just to just to just to uh, trouble pastors when they get to that text. What am I going to do with a genealogy? No, you want to know what it's saying? That seed that we have been looking for, the offspring, is here. It's going to be traced from Adam through Seth now to Noah. So I want to, I'm going to look at this. Remember those key ideas I said, initiated by grace, integrating man's work, but incomplete until Christ's advent. That's what we're going to see from this point forward in particular. Noah, what do we have with him? And I'm going to fly. This is going to be a survey, okay? This, um, so forgive me and ask questions later if you want. Noah, what do we have with him? He's there, right? It's like Genesis 6, and the world is already just, it, it's lame. <laughs> it's horrible. God looks out and, and says, men's heart are toxic. It says that he's grieved. He even made us, right? Just all the murder, all the junk that's going on in the world. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do? Like an author that would just kind of blot out his work, I'm going to blot out creation. It's over. Then you read this, Genesis 6, uh, I think it's 8. But Noah found favor, or grace in the Hebrew, in the eyes of the Lord. So you say, I'm going to destroy all of this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's not giving up on the world. Not giving up on you, not giving up on me. He's always restraining the, the, the curse that we deserve, the full weight of it, to show grace and to bring us into blessing. And He's doing that with Noah. So He initiates covenant with him by grace. And then He integrates Noah's works into this covenant, if you will. In the beginnings of the covenant there in chapter 6, He essentially says, make an ark and I'm going to save you. And bring you into a new world. All right, But what we get a sense of, long and short of it, even after God has, has flooded the world right, with the wrath of, of His anger and gotten Noah safely through, we get a sense that this, this redemption is incomplete. Because even, I mean, right on the, on the banks of the new world, as, as Noah steps out, God says this, listen, the intentions of man's heart, even Noah's, Still evil from his youth. Genesis 8.21 We didn't fix the real problem. Man is still going to screw this up. And we watch Noah and man do that from that point forward. So it's incomplete. It's moving forward though. We're tracing that seed. We're tracing that promise. We're getting to the coming sun. Now, the scene with Noah as we... we we get back to Luke here for a moment. I think it's most likely being alluded to in our text in Luke when Gabriel comforts Mary. Do you remember this in verse 30? What does he say? Do not be afraid, Mary. Why? For you have found favor, or again, in the Greek there, grace with God. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament phrase spoken first in all the Bible, to Noah. It's as if God is saying, that grace that preserved the world from my judgment in the beginning, 
is now coming in full here in the Christ. Just as in that in the beginning that grace, that ark would would save a, a small number through the flood waters of his wrath against sin and out into a new world, so too in our text God is building an ark for us. You know what Peter would say in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21? It's awesome. He says that baptism, your baptism into Christ, receiving Christ and being baptized into Him is, 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 is along the same lines as Noah's family stepping into the ark. So Peter says, That Christ is our ark. He is our way through the flood of God's wrath into new creation. So in other words, new Noah, new ark, all that that kind of signified is now coming in this promised offspring, the Christ. We move... um, now, returning to the Old Testament, uh, to Abraham. The promised offspring is traced from Noah through Shem to Abraham. It might amaze you, actually, the unity of the Scriptures, right? It's incredible. I mean, this, this book that was written over thousands of years with, with, with various people, various places, there's this unbelievable unity in it. It's hard to discern. I, I will admit you, I will grant you that. It, the, the Scriptures are hard. <laughs> but it's incredible. It's incredible to think about. And so we still are, are moving forward towards this promised seed from Noah through Shem to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant now. In the midst of paganism and darkness, God approaches a childless Abraham and establishes a covenant. It says essentially this, I will give you an offspring. I will make of you a great nation, give you a land, bless you, and all nations through you. And here's really the crown jewel of it all. I will be your God. I'm not happy with exile from garden and humanity living away. I will bring you near. We're going to do this thing. It's going to happen. I will be your God. I will get you back into the covenant blessings. So this covenant is initiated by God's grace, but we later see that man's work is integrated into it as a condition. I don't know if you knew this about the Abrahamic, but it certainly is. Genesis 18:19, God says this, I've chosen him, this is Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that... So you've got to keep the way of the Lord, do righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Initiated this covenant by God's grace, but integrated with man's works as a condition. And man is going to fall on, short on his side of the deal again. We watch Abraham constantly struggling. With, with integrity, he does things with his wife. My wife will not stick around for the things he does with his wife. He has an Ishmael, right? Not trusting God to do... He has some amazing feats of faith, but also some, some defeats. And even when the promised offspring, Isaac, is born, we get a sense that this is just a shadow of that offspring to come. Because Abraham dies, a sojourner in the land of Canaan. A stranger. This is the promised land. I'll give this to you. Uh, he dies. It seems like he hasn't got nothing to his name. Hey, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Be fruitful and multiply. He has one legitimate son from his wife with, or from his marriage with Sarah, Isaac. That's it. The end of his life. That's it. So you get a sense that this. Uh, covenant is incomplete. The redemption is incomplete. And it will be until Christ's advent. But we are narrowing in. We are moving towards that seed. The mosaic... Oh, I'm sorry. I should show you in Luke, shouldn't I? That's important. (laughs) Connect forward to our text in Luke. Let me show you where this is. Verse 37. 
Here's where the redemptive activity of God with Mary and Elizabeth is grounded in a citation of Genesis 18:14. He says this, Gabriel says this to Mary, look, nothing will be impossible with God. And we love that text. I hope we hold on to that. Nothing's impossible for I wonder if you know where it comes from. It comes from the Abraham story as God is defending before Sarah his ability to bring a child to a barren and old couple. So here's what we have. Another allusion to another covenant with the work that God's doing with, with John and Jesus. Saying, listen, that promised offspring, the new, the greater Isaac is coming. And all those promises are going to reach their fulfillment in this one. Now, we move forward. The Mosaic covenant, we've got just two more to go and then, and then we'll, uh, we'll move forward from there. Return to the Old Testament, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant with Moses. Now, something needs to be said about this, I think, at first. The, the Mosaic Covenant is not contrary to the promise made to Adam and Eve or the covenant made with Abraham. We often think that. We often think that Abraham got all the grace, Moses got all the law and the works. But it's not that way at all. It's actually just a further unfolding of this promise and of these covenants that have come before. Let me show you that in Paul. The law of Moses, Paul says, Galatians 3.19, was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was intended, he would later say, to be our guardian until Christ came. So the law is added to keep us aware of our inability to keep up our side of the bargain and also aware and anticipating the coming one who will. The offspring promised to Abraham, but before that promised to Adam and Eve. We even read this in Exodus 2.24. He moves God. God makes covenant with With Moses, he's moved to do the exodus and bring Israel out. Why? Because of his promise already made to Abraham. says this, He heard their groaning, this is Exodus 2.24, He heard their groaning in Egypt and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and he brings them out. He brings them out. and makes covenant with them at Mount Sinai. So the law and all these works that we often associate with it have as their alpha point the initiating grace of God. But of course we know that He does incorporate man's works into it. Right? He does integrate works into this covenant with Moses. And there's all sorts of texts about this. I won't read it. But that's the Ten Commandments. It's others. You won't stay in the land if you don't keep command, keep keep covenant with me, you will be exiled. You will be kicked out, right? But if you do keep covenant, blessing, the land will bear its fruit, and I will multiply you in all these things. So it's initiated by grace, integrated with man's works, and obviously we know incomplete until Christ's advent. Man on his side again, insufficient, again. Let me show you one way that, 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 that this is pictured for us in the story. This incompletion. Where does Moses die? Yeah. Outside the land. Have you ever pondered this, you guys? How horrible that is. Have you ever pondered this? That Moses spends his whole life taking this just this ragamuffin group of, of Israelites through the wilderness, dealing with them in so many ways to get to the land of promise. He gets right up to the edge and God says, I'm sorry, one little slip up there. You're done. You're going to look at the land, but you're going to die outside of it. What is going on at that point? God is picturing for us man's inability to uphold his side of the covenant and also man's desperate need for the coming offspring who will. Now, let me show you, let me show you where this is in Luke. Luke. 
Gabriel gives the name of this child to Mary. Right? This is verse 31b. What's going to be the name of this child? We saw the name John given to the child that will be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, verse 31, you shall call this child's name Jesus. Jesus. Jesus in the Hebrew, Yeshua, Yahweh saves, otherwise known as Joshua. Here's why this is significant. Who does Moses hand the mantle to upon his death so that Israel can be led into the promised land? Joshua. Joshua is the one who, after our failure to keep the law, is given the ability by God, the call by God, to lead his people into the promised land and conquest it for him. Right? So what we have here in our text is a greater Joshua. The one who is going to lead us, though we failed, though we deserve to die outside the land, the one who is going to lead us into the heavenly land of God's holy presence. Now, we return for the last time to the Old Testament. We trace the promised offspring now from Abraham as it narrows in on David. This is where things get really clear in our text in Luke, but let me show you uh, some of the background with the covenant. With David, we reach the height of Israel's story, you could say. I mean, here is the one that seems to bring fulfillment to the Abrahamic hope. He leads Israel into full acquisition of the land to the degree that, that they're given rest from all their enemies around. And at this point, he is, he is enthroned in Jerusalem. His palace. I mean, things are looking good for Israel at this point. And it's there that God initiates covenant with him by grace. And here's what we read. Notice the connections with our text in Luke, even as we do so. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. God is speaking this to David, and people are thinking maybe Solomon, or you know, this is what's going to happen. A throne, a kingdom is going to be established with David, and it's going to go on forever. We have found that promised seed, and that redemption is coming. But God integrates into this covenant the condition of man's work. This is where everything falls apart again. Psalm 132.12 says this, If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever will sit on your throne. If your sons keep covenant, they will sit on the throne. You have this promise of grace, this throne, it's going to go on forever. And then this condition of man's works. If they keep the covenant, they will sit on it forever. And you go, what? That's a very big if. And it's what causes the downfall of all this for Israel, right? I mean, it starts with David and then starts to splinter even more with with Solomon and all those that follow in line until finally the throne is vacant and the land is evacuated in the exile. And you have have this psalmist in Psalm 89, it would seem, looking at all of this saying, God made a promise and it's over. This is Psalm 89. Verses 38 and 39. He's talking about the Davidic covenant here. And he says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. That's David. Full of wrath. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've defiled his crown. We're talking about a throne and a kingdom forever and the offspring after him reigning. Look at it. It looks like you have, you have, you have left him and defiled his crown. 
man didn't keep their side of the covenant. Looks like it's all over. But grace is still running underneath it all. And we are advancing to the promised offspring. We are advancing towards Christmas. Here's where we come to our text and we stay. With these words of of Psalm 89 echoing in our minds, the words spoken later in Luke by Gabriel of this coming Christ should seem all the more pronounced. Turn to verse 32 of Luke 1. It seemed like the throne, seemed like the kingdom, seemed like the monarchy of David over. God says, no. Grace was grounding all of this. And even in your failure, we're moving forward. Verse 32, he will be great, speaking of Jesus, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Here is the true Son. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. All that was promised to David coming now in this Son is why it's so important the detail we looked at last week that Joseph is of the house of David. This promise, this covenant made with David, which is just a culmination of all the covenants that came before, fulfilled in Christ. The vacant throne will be occupied. The evacuated house will again be filled forever. He's the greater son of David. And even as we see later in Luke's Gospel, He is David's Lord. He is the King of the Covenant. This is the meaning of Christmas. Now let me ask you this. At every point along the way, man has not kept his side of the covenant. Right? And yet, continues to advance. Even though our works were integrated into the covenant as conditions upon which these things would be, you know, that this covenant would continue. Even though He integrated that as a condition, and even though we, we broke it at every point and fell away at every point, this covenant still continues. It still marches forward. It's incomplete, but advancing. And the question I have for us is, why, how, how can God overlook our failure for so many years? How could He restrain the covenant curses for so long in attempt to get us into the covenant blessings? The answer, from Genesis 3.15 onward, he was looking forward to the fullness of time, Galatians 4, when God the Son would descend into humanity and keep covenant on man's behalf. This is what's amazing about what God does Christmas Day. And why he has to take on the form of a man. Have you ever thought, why does he have to come in the flesh? Why does he have to do it this way? Here's the answer. You and I, oh God. Covenantally, we are constrained before him. There is a curse that he owes man for his sin. And there is obedience demanded from man if he is to get reward merit eternal life. And so, God, looking down at us, just stumbling and bumbling around and breaking everything, says, all right, I'm rolling up my hands and I'm coming down. He not only initiates the covenant by His grace at this point in Christ, He also will keep man's side of it. The conditions that were placed on us that we could never keep, Christ comes as a man, keeps in our place. There are two sides to this work. Therefore, that Christ would have to do, right? He would have to both suffer the covenant curses for my sin and secure the covenant blessings by fulfilling for us, for me, 
All righteousness. Two sides to this covenant. Obedience and disobedience. Pay the penalty and earn the reward. This is why the Son of Man comes. This is why God Himself comes down. Luke one thirty five. read it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God's coming down to do this. And He will fulfill both sides. Let me show you. He will bruise the head of the serpent. But in doing that, the serpent will wound Him in the process. The blessing earned, the curse suffered. He will lead us into the the, the, the paradise of God's presence and grant us access to the tree of life. That's Revelation 22, I think. At the end of all this, we will eat from the tree of life. But how will He lead us back? The flaming sword of the cherubim that guarded the the, the presence of God in Eden would have to fall on Him. Blessing, curse. Think about Noah. He would bring us safely through the flood of God's wrath and into a new world. But He could only do this if He gave His body over to the waves of God's wrath. We get through because He's covering us. Curse, blessing. He would mediate, now thinking about Abraham, He would mediate the blessing of God that was promised to Abraham, to all the nations. He would do this. But he could only do it if the knife that was called off of Isaac, remember that? I'll provide. I'll provide the lamb. The the, the knife that was called off Isaac fall on him. That's how in the resurrection we're going to do this thing and open up a fountain of grace and blessing for the world. He fulfills taking on the curse, bringing in the blessing. Think of now Joshua and and Moses. He would be the new Joshua. He would lead God's people into the Holy Land of God's presence, but he could only be Joshua if he first took on the curse that befell Moses. That handoff essentially takes place in the person of Jesus Christ. He would die outside the land. Right? Taken out. Exiled on the cross. So that, as Yeshua, as Joshua, as Yahweh saves, He could also then rise and march us in to God's promised land. And you will sit on the throne of David forever. The Prince of Peace over me now. But He will only get to the throne by way of the cross. So all that these guys experience because of their sin and the, the, the vacancy of the throne, that's what Jesus is taking there on the cross. I mean, now we look at Him, right? And we sing, I mean, by His grace, we sing, crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. We were singing a different song at Calvary, right? Oh, crown Him with a crown, but let it be a crown of thorns. You see, He would reign and He would bring us with Him into that reign, covenant blessing, by means of the cross, covenant curse. This is the meaning of Christmas. We could not find our way back up to God, so God comes down for us and He gives Himself away. That's what's happening when this son comes, when this offspring comes. Giving himself away. Now, I, I don't know the reason why we have this tradition at Christmas, gift giving. Some people say, oh, it's got pagan roots. Some people say St. Nicholas and his tradition. Some people say the Magi. I know what I'm going to tell my girls. This. God came down. Christmas Day, we remember this. And gave the greatest gift of all to the world. Namely, Himself. You read it. In this, this is 1 John 4, 9-11. In this, the love of God 
was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He gives gifts to me. I'm amazed. Chloe Bella, I give gifts to you. Look at this. I said I had all these application points and instead I spent it all in the seminary classroom. <laughs> I got so... This is, this is, this is, um, let me give you one. And we'll, oh gosh, I feel bad. Here we go. Closing observations. In light of his, his fulfillment of the covenant, our side of it, and God's side of it, the blessing and the curse. Christmas means God thinks I'm valuable. Did you catch that? Christmas means that God thinks I'm valuable. Did you hear this? Oftentimes, especially in Reformed circles, we can talk so much about sovereignty of God and total depravity of man that we kind of think we're just nothing before Him, right? We're nothing to Him. And there's a real sense where that's true. I mean, all my righteous deeds, filthy garment, and I'm just dust, right? And I'm a dog eating scraps from his table. That stuff's legitimate. It's true. But it misses the other side of it. Though I can't offer anything to him, add anything to him, what Christmas tells me is that I am unbelievably precious, immeasurably precious to him. And sometimes I worry in the church that we can think, now hear me, hear me, we can think that that we can mistake humility with self-hatred. We kind of flog ourselves for our sins and think that that's what God wants us to be doing. Well, I'll tell you, godly sorrow does not lead to self-flagellation, self-flogging. It actually leads you to the one who was flogged in your place. And that sorrow turns to joy in the cro- at the cross, right? Christmas is telling us we are immeasurably valuable to Him. Here's how I know. I, uh, I went on a, a, like a little boat expedition um, with my family on a, on a reunion we had. And, and as we were nearing the end of it, I'm looking out at the water trying to see fish or something, I don't remember. And my, my sunglasses boop, fell off and into the water. I think they were like Folkleys that I bought in New York by one of those guys that opens up his trouser jacket, you know? So here's what I knew. No way am I going after that. I'm not diving into the water to go after that. Why? Not valuable to me. Now let me tell you something. If my daughter, if my daughter fell off the boat and into that water, you want to know where I would be? In the water. I would save her if it took my life to do it. And that's what Christmas is, you see? It is Him coming down after us. The rescue communicates the value. We are, I don't know why, we don't have anything to offer Him. But our sin, there's your Christmas gift. Merry Christmas. Here's all my mess. I'm telling you, Christmas says He's coming down. He loves you. I gotta stop. Yeah, I gotta stop. One more. (laughs) Christmas means that God is not afraid of your mess. He gets his hands dirty with our lives. That's what Christmas means. It means he's coming down and into it. We often move in the opposite direction. Messy people, we see them on our caller ID, we roll our eyes, oh gosh. He's coming in, you guys. He's coming in. And I'm just going to say, this Christmas, let's let Him come in to the mess. Open up your mess to Him. Give it to Him. He wants to take the, the heart of the problem and make it right. That's why He's come. He's not looking at you going, oh my gosh, you didn't keep your end of the deal. That's what all this survey of covenant history was telling us, right? 
Man can't keep the end of the deal. We need Him to come and live out that life again in us or we don't stand a chance. That law got to be written on my heart. He got to clean me up from the inside out and He's not afraid to do it. We'll end there. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You. Thank You that You, uh, you do the deep dive into our hearts that you take the problem on from both sides. Not only do you earn the reward on our behalf and grant me, sinner though I am, access to the tree of life and glory, you also take upon yourself the curse for all my sin and disobedience. Christmas is amazing and we worship you for it. You're the king of the covenants. You've come to rescue Listen to this text, you guys. This is Christmas right here. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. God, we couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And you came down and did it on our behalf. And now we're asking, Lord, I mean, the new covenant doesn't mean there's no conditions. New covenant doesn't mean we're not called to image you by keeping your holy law and loving our neighbor as ourselves, It just means that you've now given us the ability to do it. That you're living your life in and through us. That you're making us rich through your poverty. So Lord, would you live your life in and through us again here today, this week. Take our lives, Lord. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave Himself up for me. It's not me, but Christ in me. I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I live, but He lives in me. Thank You for that great mercy. Thank You for Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.